and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are new, IWP is a national is a graduate school, excuse me, of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to speak to a staff member after the event. To support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today we'll be hearing from Mr. Bill Bruner, who will deliver a lecture entitled The Coming Hypersonic Revolution and Its Impact on International Security. Bill Bruner is the co-founder and CEO of New Frontier Aerospace, a technology development company in Seattle, Washington. NFA is, a developing, is developing a range of applied technologies for the aviation, space, and energy markets to include a renewably fueled vertical takeoff and landing hypersonic aircraft that will deliver passengers and cargo anywhere on Earth in less than two hours. From 2007 to 2009, Bill was the Assistant Administrator for Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs at NASA. Under Bill's leadership, the 30-person OLIA team directed all of NASA's relations with the U.S. Congress, governors, state legislators, and local governments. Prior to joining NASA, Mr. Bruner had a distinguished career as an aviator in the United States Air Force, from which he retired as a colonel. Among his decorations is the Bronze Star awarded for service in the first Gulf War. He then served in several key positions in Washington, among them as a space and air power expert on the staff of the Secretary of the Air Force, as a military fellow in the office of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, and as an office director within the office of the Secretary of Defense, where he won the Assistant Secretary of Defense Paul H. Nitzi Award for Excellence and in International Security Affairs. Mr. Bruner is a graduate of the National War College, the Air Force Fighters Weapons School, and the Air Force's School of Advanced Air and Space Power Studies, where his thesis topic was National Security Implications of Inexpensive Space Access. He has earned master's degrees with distinction in national security strategy and air power arts and sciences. His bachelor's degree in physical science, astronomy, is from San Francisco State University. With that, please welcome Mr. Bruce Bilbo. Thanks, that's all right. Bruce Bilbo. Yes. I'll get that for you. Sean, you. may I add that uh, we are very proud to say that uh, Colonel Bruner is also on the Board of Advisors of the Institute of World Politics. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and thank you, John Lovewell, for inviting me to be on the board. Dr. Voss, thank you very much for coming out to welcome me, welcome me onto the board a, a few months ago. Um, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be here. I don't know who that uh, introduction was about, but that guy's got an awesome resume. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so good evening, and uh, thanks, Sean, for all the technical behind-the-scenes work here. About an hour ago, this was like a bare, empty room, and uh, he made all this happen. So thank you, Sean. Uh, glad to be back in Washington talking to uh, this wonderful, knowledgeable group. I see a lot of familiar faces, some from a quarter of a century ago. Um, my mother drove out here uh, from a few uh, miles away. My sister and my niece are here. So if you hear any booing, it'll be from my sister. Um, people are always talking about technology revolutions. Uh, the personal computer revolution in the 70s, the internet revolution in the 90s, the personal cell phone revolution early in the century. 
Uh, but there are revolutions and there are revolutions. Um, it's hard to judge when we're in the middle of them, but there are technology revolutions that are in fact breakpoints in history. And I think, I think we're in the middle of another one. The advent of the airplane in the early 20th century is one of those. It was a step change in how fast we could move around the planet. Uh, it uh, led to major changes in how we live, how we work, how we play, and how, dare I say, how we wage war. Uh, but towards the end of the 20th century, advances in how fast we're able to fly essentially stopped. Little known fact, today's Boeing 787 Dreamliner is slower than a 1958 707. There are a bunch of technical reasons for that, but the net result is flying across the country takes longer today than it did 65 years ago. So 1960-0 visions of a hypersonic future with everyday travel, five or six times the speed of sound. We saw all these in Collier's or Look Magazine, magazines that aren't around anymore for you young folks. Um, but these dreams and visions languished for over 50 years. Some of us remember these visions of the future, uh, passenger travel using space technology to span the globe, carrying passengers and cargo anywhere on Earth in one or two hours instead of today sounds a lot like what my company's trying to do. This 1960-0 vision from Douglas Aircraft was fanciful, fanciful and not really taken seriously. No one had ever when this picture was drawn, no one had ever even landed a rocket on its tail before. They'd seen it in the movies, but no one had ever done it. Not until their successors at McDonnell Douglas did it in uh, 1993, about 30 years ago this year, uh, this, with a little strategic defense initiative program called Delta Clipper Experimental. And that was the first time in history that anyone had ever done that with a sizable rocket. Today, it's almost routine. Uh, even after Delta Clipper, no one had ever done it coming back from supersonic or hypersonic speeds above five times the speed of sound. But then SpaceX did it for the first time in 2015. And now, eight years later, even formation landings of two hypersonic rocket ships coming back to land at the same time at the Cape People, uh, hey, yeah, did you know there's a SpaceX launch today? No, I forgot, right? It's that routine. So uh, let's watch that first video, Sean, uh, Sean, if you don't mind. Thank you. And I probably, uh, 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 that's a little bit later, but one week you can press ahead and I'll just catch up. So now companies all over the world are working on vertical landing rocket ships to include a company called uh, Beijing Lingkong Tianjin. Hope I got that right. So this is publicly available on the internet, promotional video for a, a private uh, venture capital funded company in China. Their concept of operations is to launch two reusable stages. The first one falls off and the second one proceeds 
uh, hypersonic, stratospheric, above probably 60 or 70,000 feet. Rocket powered, so, so you don't see any inlets on there. Not enough time for an in-flight movie. By the time the credits roll, you'd already be landed. Shirt sleeve environment, no spacesuits, nothing weird. And when the vehicle gets to, I think in this case, Dubai, Not quite that fast, maybe an hour. Still darn fast. Approaching for landing. The last part is a little different than your conventional airplane, but it doesn't need a runway. Oh, again, you saw the SpaceX pictures. This is not way that, that far out beyond the realm of possibility. This is an interesting graphic. Anywhere on Earth, two hours or less, including North America. So, uh, to me at least, I don't know what you think about it. I think that these vertical takeoff and landing hypersonic aircraft are very interesting from um, travel perspective, but also from a security perspective. That's what I want to talk about today. A paper came out uh, about five or six years ago. It was a, an AIAA paper. These, that's the standard um, scholarly outlet for papers on aeronautics and astronaut, air, astronautics. It was from the School of Aerospace Engineering at Tsinghua University in Beijing called Comparison of Vertical Takeoff and Landing and Horizontal Takeoff and Landing Hypersonic Aircraft. It makes the point about security when it says the vertical takeoff and landing, I should have put the quote up, but I'm going to read it, I apologize. The vertical takeoff and landing hypersonic aircraft has significant advantages over horizontal takeoff and landing hypersonic aircraft to adapt to tough environments as in the mountains, on islands, or even on large warships. This feature makes it especially suitable for military applications for or for emergency rescues. So here's what island operations might look like with an American hypersonic rocket ship. And this whole TV production thing, Sean and I rehearsed this. And so this, we were trying to make the point that they don't have to be miles apart because this is not any sort of space launch vehicle. It's got a lot less power, and therefore they can be a lot closer to one another. You wouldn't need that runway in the background, but we showed them co-located just as a possible transportation hub. So that's the name of that tune. And here's what... Uh, operations might look like from the sea. They'd be lashed down so they don't fall over. And then you'd release the clamps for takeoff. So even though the VTOL, VTOL hypersonic aircraft has operational advantages, um, you don't have to take off that way. Just in the opinion of the authors of that paper and my company, because 
oops, uh, we think that that's the best way to go. Um, there are also a number of horizontal takeoff and landing hypersonic aircraft development programs underway, some funded by the private sector, usually with some government investment. Uh, there are no vertical programs in the United States that are being funded by the government at a large scale. Our program's being funded, I'll talk to you about it, um, in terms of engine manufacturing. So why are there so many hypersonic aircraft programs emerging now? With the increasing power of computing, we'll come back to that later. Machine learning and advanced manufacturing, it's becoming easier and easier to design, build, and control hypersonic aircraft. With machine learning, SpaceX taught, they essentially taught the, their hypersonic ships, rocket ships, to come back from Mach 10 and land. If you remember the videos, Elon put together a greatest hits video where he had them all crashing. And people thought, well, isn't that embarrassing? No, it's actually sort of like watching a toddler learn step by step and get to a successful result at the end. And that's what was going on in those videos. That was 13 years. The company was founded in 2002. By 2015, the machines had learned to come back from extremely high speeds and land on a dime. They also used a relatively advanced manufacturing technology called friction stir welding. It's esoteric material stuff. However, it was cheaper than the ordinary uh, uh, welding technique that their, that their competitors used. So now with an even more advanced manufacturing technology, 3D printing, as it's known, small companies are able to print hypersonic capable engines and vehicles. Uh, with the support of the US government, my company designed, printed, and integrated um, this 2,500 pound thrust rocket engine, a natural gas and liquid oxygen. It's the third uh, full flow stage combustion engine in history. The first was a Soviet RD-270. The second is Elon's Raptor, and this is the third, and it's the only one that's for sale. Small company, 11 months from uh, nickel or inconel dust to a working um, fuel pump, which is what this is, which is the first um, phase of what the government paid us to do. And the rest of it will be uh, finished with a contract that's about to be announced. So you're the first to hear that. So we'll have that up on the test stand by next April. Um, we hot fired the first component in less than a year and we'll be selling them in the second quarter of next year. There's a 3D printed rocket from a company called Relativity Space sitting on the, on the pad at Kennedy right now. So it is possible to print hypersonic vehicles and to, uh, and to manage the thermal and the aero challenges with um, 3D printing. These efforts around the world are likely to proliferate. If anybody knows the history of technology, it's inevitable. And they'll have significant impacts throughout our society. Let's take one example, transplant medicine. Today, commercial aircraft take a minimum of six hours to cross the continental United States. Um, unfortunately, uh, um, for the physicians in the room, the ischemic life of a donated heart or lung is only four hours. So six hours versus four hours, there's currently no way for a donor on the West Coast to donate an organ to someone who's a perfect tissue match on the East Coast. There's no possible way. And we just live with it. We say, well, that's just the way it is, right? Airplanes only go so fast. Well, not so fast. 
Of the 100,000 or so people waiting for transplant organs uh, in the United States today, 20 die just waiting, sometimes because um, the organs aren't available because they're too far away. And so uh, the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is the nonprofit funded by Medicare, the U.S. government, to, uh, to allocate um, uh, transplant organs, they, they confine their search to a 400-mile circle because they know that if you go outside that circle, it's too far. The organ will never make it. So what if you had an airplane that could go three or 4,000 miles an hour and was safe? That could save lives. Uh, at the, so I mentioned how many uh, hearts, I don't know if I mentioned this, so I'm going to go back to it. I think it's important. 50 to 60% of donated hearts are um, um, ex- discarded. About 20% of donated kidneys are discarded. Some because they're too far away for today's aircraft to get them to the match recipient in time. This could help fix that. Or imagine how much more time business or government travelers could spend with their families if you could leave Washington in the morning, be in Asia for business a couple of hours later, have your meetings, get back on the aircraft, and be back home in time for dinner or Bible study. Um, So what does this have to do with the international security environment? We had a brief preview of what this means. Now we're to this picture. We had a brief preview of what this means in in the past few days. No, this is not the Chinese reconnaissance balloon that traversed our skies and dominated news coverage last week. It's a Google-funded telecommunications balloon called Project Loon that was test launched out of Puerto Rico about four years ago. And I show this to say, you know, things that we you know, publish on the internet, papers, and we give up on, we go, ah, oh, that's too boring. We have other things to do, like uh, I don't know, the latest TikTok video, um, are picked up by other people. They say, that, that's very interesting. Let's go build that. Just a food for thought about um, our hyper-informed um, uh, internet uh, slash uh, public media environment that we operate in. So you can build a fairly sophisticated package and put it underneath a balloon and fly it um, at high altitudes, right? And this one operated at altitudes about 60 to 75,000 feet, very similar to the altitudes we saw last week. So these aircraft, Project Loon, the one that we saw last week, join an increasing number of platforms operating in what the FAA calls upper class E airspace, between 60,000 feet or flight level 600 for the pilots in the room, um, and space. So right now, it's sort of a no man's land, or you know, we could put on this chart, here there be dragons, because the FAA, I'll just read the quote, um, it's not just our national security enterprise that can't figure this out. Uh, It's also our regulators. So here's a quote from the regulators who are studying upper class E. I don't think there are any more videos, Sean. Okay, good. Thank you so much. So the FAA quote is, uh, as soon as the tiny screen gets to it, 
that they actually have no ability to control or uh, monitor traffic at those altitudes. Um, so it's not just our national security enterprise. It has challenges in this area. The regulators are struggling with it too. Uh, in the United States, there are no specific provisions for aircraft operations above 60,000 feet for civil aircraft. Most existing applications are limited to military operations, but these operations are proliferating. As the FAA also says, operations in upper class E airspace have historically been limited due to the challenges faced by conventional fixed wing aircraft and a bunch of technical stuff. However, recent advances in power and propulsion, aircraft structures, flight automation, and aero have increased the number of vehicles that can now operate in that airspace. So I'm gonna give you a list of the types of, air, of airplanes that the FAA thinks are gonna operate in that, in that area. Sophisticated high altitude drones, unmanned free balloons, airships, which are powered balloons, and supersonic hypersonic aircraft can now efficiently and economically satisfy research objectives um, in that area. So I don't mean to be an alarmist. Um, if a slow moving balloon operating, operating in upper class E, let's call it near space, can cause as much consternation as this country went through last week, imagine the future uh, that we described at the beginning of this talk where there's routine traffic in this flight regime where countries around the world have access to hypersonic technology and could potentially fly and land vertically hypersonic passenger and cargo aircraft anywhere on earth in a couple of hours, or could fly through near space over our, our country in airspace. We have limited ability. We've demonstrated we have limited ability to control or defend. Uh, this again, not, is not meant to be alarmist. Well, before there are hundreds or thousands of high altitude hypersonic flights over this country, We'll have, we should, if we're smart and um, we have the right leadership, we'll have time to put the appropriate controls and safeguards in place. But to do that, we have to get started now. Uh, according to Air Force General Glenn D. Van Herc last week, he said this two days ago, the head of NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command, and NORTHCOM, the North Northern Command, the intelligence community eventually made him, quote, aware of those balloons, eventually, uh, that were previously approaching North America or transited North America. But NORAD did not know about those cases in real time. This is a quote. As NORAD commander, it's my responsibility to detect threats to North America. I will tell you that we did not detect those threats and that's a domain awareness gap that we have to figure out. So on the military side, as well as the FAA side, there's a lot of work to do as near space becomes more and more crowded and potentially more threatening. So that concludes my prepared remarks. I stand ready to answer your questions and uh, I hope you got something out of that. And we can probably turn the air conditioning back on. I had it turned off because of the noise. So I, so I saw people, kind of, so I apologize. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll start the Q&A. I have a mic so it picks up on our uh, live streaming feed. So if you guys have any questions, just raise your hand and I'll come to you. I'll pass you the mic and just speak into these small circles right now. Thank you for the uh, excellent presentation and the and, uh, an illuminating one. Uh, I, and, and timely. Uh, 
I, I'm, I, I think maybe a lot of us are wondering about the reports of uh, China's alleged uh, hi- hypersonic weapons that can, or, or missiles that can go twenty-two, allegedly twenty-two thousand miles. I know it's probably class, and then, but, but I've also heard that we may have defensive technology once the weapons re-enter uh, the atmosphere. Uh, the, but, but if we don't, if we can't detect them, then. <laughs> I also heard from the head of the former head, uh, young general, uh, about 36 or 8, that was the retired uh, head of Israeli Defense Force, the Air Force, and and, and was in charge of the Iron Dome. And he talked about uh, human, how human operators were much better than machine operators in judgment. And they have... Um, about one second to respond to something launched from Lebanon to make a decision. They can discriminate against uh, things that will land on human top targets, as you know, far better than I. And then from uh, even even if something's launched from Iran, they have they, they have to make an ex- extremely uh, quick uh, judgment call on whether to uh, initiate uh, defensive actions or not. If there's a lot of triage. I can't speak to that. But, 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 uh, but I'm interested in it's perplexing because atoms break up at that at those alleged hypersonic speeds. The, there's there's got to be some things in material science that are pretty advanced if, if anything can approach that. So all I can speak to is what my company's doing. Mach 5, X-15 was made out of the same stuff, and it did just fine. And... and but at Mach 10, we have work to do. So we're gonna to have to develop new thermal protection techniques, um, new coatings, new materials. So that's a rich area for research. But we um, are gonna fly at Mach 5 first because we believe in engines that work and materials that already work. Because if you spend years and years and years developing scramjets, ramjets, I'm gonna show you my prejudices here. You'll sit in the lab and you won't fly anything, and you'll watch the adversary flying or other places, other people flying stuff because they make technical compromises that we're too smart to make. That's, we just have a tendency to develop, 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 and not build. Sir. Thank you for a fascinating presentation. So... Um, I just imagine what would happen if uh, malevolent actors put together 500 of these things and detonate them up in outer space and zap us with a massive EMP attack. It seems, seems to me that uh, our best and brightest need to figure out how to deal with something like that. I wonder what you think. So... I can only tell you that, that there may be, uh, along the lines of the talk, it will be uh, very inexpensive to produce these things in a few years. I think we'll be surprised. I can only give you an analogy, and that is in 1903, the Wright brothers invent the airplane. It's 1907, they can't get the attention of the US government, so they put the airplane in a crate, and they took it to France, and uh, they were showing it around, and people were wowed, and the government there decided, we're gonna invest in this technology and buy these things. 
the Army heard about that and said, you guys come back here. So they put the airplane back in the crate, took it back to Fort Myer, they flew it, and the Army bought it. Just because things are invented here, it doesn't mean that they will be the first to leverage them and build large numbers of them. I can't speak to vulnerabilities, and I, I just don't want to get into um, speculating about potential weapons uses. Sir. What's the timeline for launching something? Something. And, and, and how are you doing on your funding? Okay, us. Thank you for that yeah. question, John. Yeah. So um, we're pursuing the engine first. We believe we have a good product. We'll use that to generate revenue. We think it, the, the um, government funding is sufficient to get it built. We'll need to raise venture funding to turn it into a product, to do qualification testing, to full duration run testing. Um, and we believe that that will create enough credibility for us to raise private capital to build the Pathfinder vehicle, which is a 12 foot tall version of this. And flying that would probably be 25, maybe, uh, if, we're, if we really uh, hit all of our marks and raise the money we need. And uh, maybe 26, 25 or 26, you can expect to see our airplanes fly. Inshallah. Yes, sir. What, uh, what part of DOD is uh, doing this research? So our sponsor is called National Security Innovation Capital. They fund dual-use technologies that have a hard time raising private sector capital because it's, it's too risky. So I think it's a very important part of uh, the defense innovation portfolio. I'm biased. I think... Um, it's public knowledge. There was an Air Force One Star, an acquisition professional, who retired a few months ago. And he said that um, China is deploying, fielding new weapon systems five to six times faster than we are. And they get 20 times more leverage out of each defense dollar or yuan than we do. I you know, don't want to dispute a general officer who's an acquisition professional. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that's somewhere close to correct. And so these small efforts that we have, NSIC is funded at $15 million in fiscal year 23. DIU, its parent organization, is funded at $65 million. Compare that to the billions uh, in the conventional slow acquisition system. I hope I'm not offending anybody who's in uh, uh, USD, uh, what's it called? These, it used to be ATNL, whatever they call acquisition these days. It's a it's it's DOD. It's a it's under Heidi Shu, USD R and E, um, and then the Defense Innovation Unit. I think is a direct report to her. My point with your last comment, uh, I was at a, I was at a NASA facility in um, in, in Cleveland, and uh, they showed a graph and the, the rate of the innovations and patents per million expended were inversely related to, to the size of the organization. And, and so you're, you're sticky to that exact point. And it's quite dramatic. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, with the embarrassing situation from last week in Berlin, do you think that anybody has the gravitas to move forward and try to fund it? And that's those are embarrassing numbers for the safety of our skies. You mean to fund 
innovative new systems. Right. Right. It's a very good question. So, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into legislative mechanics, but there was a letter from Mike Gallagher, Wisconsin former Marine, asking the appropriations committees to, to raise the number in 23, and it didn't happen. So it's just a matter of the status quo. Is, it's always, there's nothing more difficult uh, than change. And so, okay. Yes, sir. How does Sonic Boom come into this? Awesome. Great question. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. So our competitors that you may have heard of, uh, the appropriately named Boom Supersonic, uh, they're building a new Concorde. Air breathing, it's a turbojet, like Concorde, um, but sub, uh, below Mach 2. But they're also at about 40,000 feet, which means the boom footprint propagates Pretty, it's no higher than today's airliners. It's just as loud as Concorde. I think that's a problem. They're going to try through some magic of aer aerodynamics to, and then NASA's working with the supersonic manufacturers to, to address that. Because we don't need air, we're going to be flying a lot higher, about 160,000 feet. So our models suggest that the boom footprint on the ground is about 59 dB. That fan over there is louder than um, now on ascent, we'll pop propagate the boom up, but our boom, our noise footprint, separate from the boom, is going to be a 747 footprint. But it doesn't like uh, an airplane on departure will propagate noise that way. And so if you look at a noise footprint on a, a map of an airport, it's like a fan that goes out this way. Ours will be concentrated around the airport. So we think our we think we've got a pretty good story on noise. We got to solve the passenger comfort problem, and we got to solve the high-speed thermal problem. But those are soluble. I mean, Elon solved most of them for us. We just have to do what he did. Sir, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of the material science, yes. um, there's a technology. Maybe you're familiar with it or not, but it's called molecular docking. It's used in biological applications. It's trying to solve cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. You have some molecule that's say like this normally yeah. and then it sticks together right. and then molecular docking is you find something that sticks in there and stops stops the cancer from replicating right and so it's a big area people are trying to do stuff you can't really solve these biological molecules exactly with quantum mechanics but you can sort of try things you, you use ideas that are not exact solutions but that gives you some hints to search for these molecules right and you could use the same technology for your material science search to try to search through molecules. Is that something you've thought of already? or So we're doing ceramic coatings. There are other materials that we're investigating. I'd be glad to learn more and you know, run it past our technical folks. Okay. Uh, thank you for your remarks, Colonel. I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on uh, cost. Uh, awesome. Some of the uh, hurdles there, like uh, at what point do you get to compete with Southwest? Yeah. You know? <laughs> thank you. Yeah, they're, they're pretty expensive compared to us. Um, so the fuel cost of natural gas uh, in the per pound versus jet fuel is a lot less. 
the manufacturing costs, if we're right about 3D printing, are less than conventional airplanes. So we estimate that our operations costs are comparable to those of subsonic airplanes today. People don't believe it, but we, we're going to continue saying it. Airplanes are essentially balloons made of metal. They're very, very, I mean, rockets. Rockets are balloons made of metal. Uh, if you've ever, like, uh, flown in a private airplane and you press your finger on the side of a Cessna, it, it dimples. I mean, they're just very light. We're about, uh, their mass fractions are usually 60 or 70% propellant. We're like 80 or 90% propellant. It's those vehicles that you see there. They're structurally strong, but they're also very, very, very light. Um, so why is that important? Um, gross weight is probably the most uh, accurate predictor of aircraft price. And so for an equivalent size range airplane, we're lighter than them. If you add additive, it's cheaper to manufacture and we're cheaper to fuel. We do think our operating costs for a 777 across the Atlantic is about the same as us, $150,000 or so. So, so does that, what does that carry in terms of payload if you're yep. in terms of Right. So I've got charts on, on that. So the full-size vehicle that you saw taking up, and, and you saw it in military livery, but there's a civilian version of it. It carries uh, 150 people transatlantic, right? But the farther you go, the less people, because you've got to put more gas in it, right? It's, it, it's like airplanes, but a little much more, uh, like with an airplane, the difference might, might be 10% passenger load. But for us, it's like 90%. If you go 8,000 miles in that airplane, in the one that I showed you, you can only carry a bizjet size passenger complement, 17 or 18 people. You're thinking commercial versus defense? Um, we're, we're talking to major aircraft um, airline, and uh, that's a much larger market. I mean, it's the smart thing to do. So we're selling these things commercially. Um, it's dual use, right? Um, if the Defense Department is smart enough, we think they'll buy them. But if they're not, we'll sell them to FedEx. And we have a question back here for you. Sir. You got a president? Hey, Bill, Steve Sargent. Nice, nice to see, see you again. Nice to see you, sir. So uh, I was supposed to be here on time, but my airplane got held on the ground uh, couple hours from here just because it was a little congested at national right so given how the faa does and doesn't do change right and some would say are kind of years behind where they ought to be today right how do you see the rest of the cost right that's handling the fuel right handling the traffic right you might recall back when uh, a10s and f16s were put together at pope right physics that wasn't a problem right change yeah. in the personnel yeah. on the mic, right. that was a problem. They ran them together. So uh, that's a really great question, Steve. So, so the noise question, that was a good one. The cost question is a good one. And Steve, that's a great question. The regulatory question. So um, you know, we're going to try to take a lesson from Musk and use um, government requirements as leverage to say, here we are flying these government um, missions uh, out of Edwards for test. So we don't, you guys aren't going to try to certify this airplane, right? FAA will probably give us a waiver. They'll give us an airspace waiver. They'll give us boom waivers. And then when we try to sell it into the commercial market, 
or hoping that uh, they see common sense. But so part of why I'm in Washington, why I took advantage of this opportunity to talk to some friends who might be able to help us on the Hill, not just with funding, but with regulatory relief from the FAA. So we, you know, I could talk to you about this at, at length, but we have the boom problem. We're gonna have the problem with the space part of the FAA saying, you're a space launch, you need to have a space launch license. We're gonna have to fight that battle. Then we're gonna have to find a way to get these airplanes certified, right? Because even Boeing, has to spend billions of dollars. Part of the reason that their airplanes are so expensive to get, is to get them certified. So um, you're right, it's a tough road to hoe, but we're, you know, um, we've got our uh, head, heads on a swivel, we got our essay up and we are going to win. Thank you. It's good to see you. I probably haven't seen you in 30 years. Um, when the pl when the planes fly below that FL whatever, yeah, the, they yeah. need flight clearance for any oh, country they fly over. That is correct, sir. Above a certain level, I presume we don't yeah. give a damn. But uh, it, is this yeah. an area where they need flight clearance? Yes. Yeah, so most countries, you can fly them, up, up, you know, over uh, just through um, international custom customary law. You can fly over any spot on Earth from space, whatever that definition is, but this isn't space. And as we found out last week, this isn't space. We care. If you flew over most countries at this altitude, they would care a lot. So we have to figure that out, is how, how do we as an international community, I've talk, spoken mostly from a U.S.-centric point of view, but this is going to be something the international community is going to have to figure out. Um, otherwise, there will be lots of room for miscalculation and uh, possible disaster if you mistake a, a passenger launch for a military launch. Um, it could be a real problem. Um, now, just out of curiosity, the financial services has drawn a lot of brain power out of physics and <laughs> right. engineering and, and everywhere. Um, and the partial differential equations in financial services are almost exactly the same as the Schrodinger equation in quantum mechanics and also diffusion equations. And so there's a lot of work has been done on techniques in mathematical finance that can then be applied to Schrodinger equation, quantum mechanics, getting back to that material science issue. And so a lot of the really the best people are in that area and there's people from Russia, China, people who go back and forth between here and China who have a lot of know-how in these methods. And I'm sure they're applying them to physics areas when they're back in China mm -hmm. and to these material science issues. And I just wondered if there's a, a realization of just how much knowledge now is in finance that applies to quantum mechanics and then to material science and any quantum mechanical problem there's something in finance that's at least going to help you, plus the fact that it's usually easier to understand in the finance equation than it is in the quantum mechanics You'll have to equation. talk to my engineers about that. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any more questions in the audience? Seeing none, let's give another Thank round of applause Thank to you. Mr. Bruner. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you, Sean. Very American. Here's Thank your you. microphone. Oh, thank you.